Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to tonight's um, edition of our Sourcing Food, Plants, Animals, and the Jews Who Tend Them series. Uh, tonight, people are still joining, but I do just want to um, say a little bit about what this program is part of, and then I'll introduce our speaker. So um, tonight's program is part of a week-long series. Uh, we were supposed to have a dairy farmer, a beekeeper, a poultry farmer slash shokhi, and um, tonight's speaker about uh, produce farming, but um, our dairy farmer got sick. Hopefully we'll hear from him in advance of Shavuot when we're all thinking about dairy anyways. Uh, so hopefully that will be um, a fun time to make that up. But he, um, but instead we had a session on Shrita and um, an amazing session on beekeeping. And then last night we had a wonderful presentation um, about poultry and about heritage poultry and a potential farm that's starting and, and some of the challenges that are um, weighing down the American like poultry factory system in general. And if you missed that talk, really strong recommend. I've learned so many things about chickens that I did not know before. <laughs> and um, and, and we have tonight's speaker. And this whole series is part of our larger Winter's Man, where today rounds out the end of our first week. On Sunday, we're going to have a special reunion about food ethics. And I think that's going to be just a really um, fantastic event. We have a, an ethicist, Professor Jonathan Crane, is going to be speaking. Rabbi Aviva Richman will be speaking. And our own uh, Rabbi David Silver will be speaking. Um, and it should just be like a really, really interesting and exciting day. Um, and then next week, we have a whole other week of programming with morning shirim and afternoon programming. And if this is the time slot that works for you, I really recommend you join us next week. We'll have, um, we'll start off on Monday with a session by me about how scarcity underlies a lot of halachic conversation. So we'll be looking looking at, at some, some very like familiar areas of halacha, but looking at them from a perspective of food scarcity. Then we'll have a presentation from Mazon talking about food scarcity and food distribution in the United States and their work on um, food policy, followed by an evening panel discussion by various Jewish organizations that are involved in food distribution in the United States. Um, and that should be a really, really interesting um, conversation. Um, and then the last evening, we'll talk about um, more specifically food distribution in Tanakh, and we'll talk about Joseph, and we'll talk about Nechanya, um, who are both involved in food distribution efforts um, in their own times. Um, but without further ado, uh, I want to introduce our speaker for tonight, Michael Fraud, our very own, um, a, our assistant program director at Drisha. He's also a rabbinical student at Hebrew College and, um, and the assistant program director for us. Um, born in Connecticut, Michael earned a BA in history from Yale University, after which he spent five years in the South working as the Jewish Outdoor Food and Environmental Education Director at the Louisville, Kentucky JCC, as well as on a number of small farms. Michael has learned Torah at the Hadar Institute, the Drisha Institute, and is also an alumnus of Chazon's Jaffe Fellowship. Um, another <laughs> fun fact about Michael is that when we were undergrads together, he wore bow ties and collared shirts and like fancy sweaters every day of the week. And then the next year, he was sort of like, you know what, I'm going to go farm plants. <laughs> and, and then he sort of had this image in my head of Michael with his bow ties on these farms. <laughs> and so I'm very, very thrilled for the opportunity to learn about that experience from him, how we got there, what it was like, and, um, and also some tour that he has to share with us. So we're, we're thrilled to have you um, as a teacher this, this evening for Drisha Michael and uh, Thank you so much, Rabbanit Sarna. Um, 
appreciate the introduction and uh, and thanks to all of you for for being here as well. It's uh, it's a pleasure to see everyone here. Um, you know, it's it's really wonderful to be wrapping up both the first week of Drisha's Winter's Mind, which has been a phenomenal program uh, to be wrapping up this this first week's evening series. Um, you know, I was at Rabbi Haas's and Rabbi Greenberg's classes earlier this week, and it is absolutely phenomenal to hear from people who know so much about this work and who have put so much time and thought into it. Um, I'm really grateful to all of you for, for being here. I feel like the folks who show up to learn Torah on New Year's Eve are like the real troopers. So uh, thanks for, for being here. Um, I wanna start out just by giving a little bit more context for uh, how I got to be giving this year and, and some of the different experiences I've had that, that got me here. Um, and then we'll dive in and we'll be spending most of the time talking Torah and we'll leave some time at the end for questions and answers. Uh, but also feel free to uh, put things in the chat if you want to. In the meantime, I'm gonna try to keep an eye on it, although I can't promise I'll, I'll be able to catch everything. Um, but yeah, basically um, I, I did not know a lot about farming growing up. I grew up in Connecticut. I had a lot of different outdoor experiences. I was a Boy Scout. I did some gardening with my dad, who's here tonight. Um, you know, I did a lot of stuff at summer camp. We didn't really do a lot of like farming or I didn't have exposure to that. But um, after I graduated college, I kind of knew I was looking for something different. I'd been doing a lot of different things that uh, had me focusing on my mind, not necessarily focusing so much on my body or my spirit. And I knew I wanted to change that. Um, so the first thing I did was to try Woofing, uh, which is a work exchange program. I think Ravneet Sarna was the one who first told me about it. Um, but I basically uh, you know, went to North Carolina and to Texas and worked on farms there and road tripped all around the South working with produce uh, as well as with livestock. And then got a job in Virginia on a small farm outside of Richmond uh, working primarily with livestock. Um, you know, a lot of really, really special experiences there uh, for me with an opportunity to kind of be outside of the communal structures that I was used to and to, to try some new things. Um, and, and that had a huge impact on, on the way that I experienced my Jewish life as well. Uh, you know, the idea of Shabbat meant something totally different after a week of intense physical labor. Um, you know, I was spending time with people in different communities. I was, you know, kind of figuring out what, uh, what some of these things meant in totally different context. Uh, you know, I remember at one point being like the only Jew in the county during Hanukkah. And I was like, oh, this is a different Pirsume Nisa. Um, and, and like a big part of that was also the ways in which it made me much more attentive to some of the ties that the Tanakh has and that other Jewish texts have to agriculture and an awareness of the natural world. Um, so I did that for a few years on farms and then spent three years in Louisville um, working at the Jewish Community Center doing outdoor food and environmental education. Uh, we had a garden there. We did a lot of food justice work. We donated most of our produce to a local food pantry. Uh, there was a bunch of educational programming, uh, you know, running Tubishvat Sadarim and other 
programs for different Chagim, uh, a lot of different ways to kind of combine education, activism, environmentalism, farm work and produce work, um, and, and kind of after, after having the experience of, of putting those things together, I came back to the Northeast and I'm now working for Drisha and in rabbinical school. Um, and, and yeah, there's been a lot of great conversations so far in this series about different people who have been working with livestock and working with animals. Um, you know, and I think they have mentioned some of this as well, but uh, you know, one of the things that really came through for me during this time is just how demanding this work can be. And, and you know, it's also work that, that takes a lot of smarts. Um, you know, it's a lot of folks who are not working with a ton of money or resources. Uh, you're very dependent on the weather, the soil, the market, other forces that are totally outside of your control, especially with climate change these days, which is making life far more difficult for a lot of farmers. Uh, you know, you're running a business that, have, that has a ton of different variables and it requires the whole year, uh, even though, you know, farmer's market season may only be six, maybe eight months, depending on where you live. Um, you know, in order to map out where you want to grow, what you're going to grow, decide which plants or, or what varieties of those plants you're going to grow, make sales projections, figure out where you're going to be selling your produce, starting your seeds indoors so that they can go out as soon as the first frost is clear and you can get a jump start on the planting, um, you know, and then getting things ready. And then during the growing season, a marathon of growing plants, protecting them from pests, from the elements, harvesting, packing, selling produce, uh, you know, tearing up old plants as, as their season ends, putting in the new ones. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of work and it's very complicated. And I think one of the things I really got an appreciation for was just how many different skills and knowledge areas it takes to do some of that work. It was really a, a huge pleasure to get to, uh, to learn from people who put serious time and effort into doing those things and, and into teaching others how to do those things. Um, and that being said, it's a ton of work. It's also incredibly fun. Uh, deciding which varieties of produce you're gonna plant, trying to find things that are gonna get people excited, whether that is uh, you know, a purple carrot or a watermelon that's got speckles on it or you know, beets that have like purple and white rings in the inside instead of just being one color. Uh, there's thousands of varieties of plants out there. I think the ones that people are used to seeing in the grocery store are usually the ones that are bred for longevity, for storage, for stability. Um, and there's so many different things that you can play with in terms of uh, color, taste, yield, shape, and uh, you know whether it's kids or whether it's adults. I think there's there's one of the things that I really enjoyed was was just getting to see all of the different varieties out there. Like produce is beautiful when you get to see it, um, and there's something really special about being able to engage with that and being able to make choices about what you're gonna grow and what you're gonna eat. Um, also not the focus of this year, but working with animals is an extraordinary experience. Um, there is nothing that is as much fun as working on a farm during kidding season and just seeing dozens of like week or two week old goats hopping all around the field. Um, 
if you haven't done it, put it on your post-pandemic list. Cannot recommend it enough. Um, and and yeah, I think during during this time, as I said, there there was a real shift for me in terms of thinking about not just my interest in this in general, but also the ways in which um, it really brought home the ways in which Torah and other Jewish texts are predicated on an intimate, personal understanding of the natural world. Um, ancient Israel was an agrarian society. Ancient Bavel was an agricultural society. Uh, the texts that we read are written by people who lived in and with nature. And I think that having a reference point of my own for what those things looked like and felt like gave me the ability to intuitively understand some of what was going on in those spaces and in those texts uh, in a way that was much harder to access before that. Um, so one of the things that I wanna try to do tonight is to um, you know, use this opportunity to go through a few texts and, and kind of combine, you know, look, to, to, to look at some different things that we might see in the Torah, uh, and, and this, this year in particular, we're going to be looking at things in Tanakh, and to think through the ways in which reading those with an eye toward agriculture and the realities of agrarian society opens up whole new perspectives on, on what those things can mean. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and share the sources on my screen. Um, and just before, before we jump in, uh, are there any quick questions before we, we get into the sources um, with the caveat that I might push them until the end of the class? Great. All right. So then let's jump in. And, and again, if people have questions, comments, feel free to put them, put them in the chat as we go, and, uh, and I'll try to catch them. Uh, so the first thing I want to try to look at this evening is just thinking through the agricultural calendar. Um, we have sources from a bunch of different places that kind of talk to us about how the year works. You know, I just outlined some of the things that I saw when I was working on produce farms and, and when they plant it and thinking about how different kinds of produce have different seasons, how there's a different time of year where you're focused on every kind of task. And so we actually have a bunch of early sources for what the agricultural calendar might have looked like in ancient Israel. Uh, the first thing that we're going to see is there's this agricultural calendar called the Gezer calendar. Um, Gezer is an it's it's an archaeological site in central Israel. Um, it's got a ton of different layers of of stuff there. They've they've been excavating it for for many years. But one of the things that they found was called the Gezer calendar. Um, it's from around 900 BCE, and it's like a written out basic calendar of what happens during the year. Um, and so you can see it there. It says there's two months of ingathering olives, two months of sowing cereals, two months of late sowing for legumes and vegetables, a month of hoeing weeds, a month of harvesting barley, a month of harvesting wheat and measuring grain, two months of grape harvesting, and a month of ingathering summer fruit. Um, so we can see, you know, kind of a, a 
brief sketch of what happens from the beginning of the year through the end of the year. And I think we're going to skip this source in, in the Bobbly right now, but basically we can, you know, kind of map that onto uh, a different source of Hazal talking about the ways in which they understood how the months of the year would play out in terms of the agricultural calendar. Um, but instead, what I want to do is kind of with the background of the Gezer calendar to then think about a passage in Dvarim that will probably be very familiar to many of us um, if for the, the introduction of what have come to be known as the seven species. Um, so it says in Dvarim, Ki Hashem al-Kacha m'viachal eres tova eres nachle maim ayenot utomot yosim b'vika uvahar eres chita usara gefen utayna v'rimon eres sa'id shemen udvash. Right, a land of wheat and barley, of vines, aka grapes, figs, pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, which is date honey um, predominantly. Uh, you know, and, and so those, those have come to be thought of as this great artistic motif. They show up all over Judaica and art. You know, people, people are probably very familiar with these as being like the emblematic species of the land of Israel. Um, so if we look right below that, there's a brief way of matching up some of what we've seen with the Gezer calendar, the months of the Hebrew calendar, and the seven species. So if we take a quick look at this, um, you know, look at that graphic especially the last line, uh, while, you know, we look at the Pasuk again, where it says, a land of wheat, barley, vines, grapes, figs and pomegranates, summer fruits, olive trees, honey. Um, does anyone notice something about what's going on with this description and how it plays into the calendar? So one of the things that's happening here is that these seven species are listed in the order that they are harvested, roughly. Um, the seven species, as they're listed in Deuteronomy, are a shorthand calendar. Um, you know, we can see the ways in which it is setting things up as going through our spring produce, our summer produce, our fall produce, and you know, for people who are used to working the land, you know, this reads very similarly to hearing about a land that is full of spring onions and dandelion greens and eggplant and tomatoes and peppers and pumpkins and squash. Um, and if any of you have ever been to a farmer's market or a CSA, you'll know like, oh, those are different seasons. That's a progression. Um, and so this is listed as such. Um, it's listed to be a shorthand calendar for, for people who were going to be living in that context and in that world. Um, and we might ask ourselves, you know, what, what exactly makes these the seven species beyond the fact that they are listed, beyond the fact that they make for a convenient calendar? You know, what makes these important? Um, it's not just because they taste good. It's not because they make great art. Um, these are basically the cash crops 
of ancient Israel. Uh, if folks look throughout Tanakh, they will see references to Dagan, Chiroshvi's heart to, to grain, wine, and oil as the staples of the diet. Um, those are the things that were frequently eaten and, and drunk by everyone. And in addition to that, the other species that we have here are things that can be dried, pressed, made into wine. Every one of these species is basically very easy to preserve or store in some fashion. It's great for travel, it's great for trade, it's great for saving things through the winter. Um, they also are really yummy, but there's like a practicality to the seven species in that these are things that, that grow easily um, with the exception of the two grains. They are all things that grow on trees or vines, which makes them perennials. Um, basically, you know, two, two major kinds of plants that we have are perennials and annuals. Perennials are things that come back from year to year that you don't have to replant. Uh, annuals are things that you do have to replant every year. So um, anything that grows on a tree is a perennial. And so if you set yourself up with your homestead of olive trees and grapevines and fig trees, you don't necessarily have to do the same amount of work every year as if you were planting uh, a ton of other produce that had to be replanted every single season or every single year. Um, so this is a very practical list in addition, in addition to, um, you know, being, being fun and being uh, stuff that, that we love to, to eat. It's also just kind of a, a shorthand list of the things that made up the backbone of an agricultural society from a practical perspective. So I had a question, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but you just said something which I always wondered about. And I don't think there's that many references to actual like vegetables in the Torah. And uh -huh. maybe because they weren't, like you mentioned tomatoes, but they weren't even that part of the world for centuries later. But yeah. I don't think they planted crops that we know like salad, <laughs> that wasn't a staple. Right. I've always wondered about that. And also the things that you did mention, you know, vines and you know, figs and trees, pistachios, they don't take time to grow. So I've always wondered like, you know, you can tend to your trees, but you got to plant them until they bear fruit it's ages. But I've always wondered about the fruits and vegetables, which I guess were not part of the diet in that part of the world. Maybe yeah. nothing grew there. So maybe, um, maybe not what? Sorry. Maybe they just didn't grow there because of the climate, or they just weren't equipped to plant those kinds of seeds. Um, so that was one thing I always wondered. And the other one is a little bit off topic, but maybe you'll get to it. For years growing up, I always had the right to land of milk and honey literal. And then you kind of touch on as well where honey might have been like from date honey and milk was more from goats. But I've always had visions of cheese and yogurt and things like that, but that's not the case either. So maybe you'll touch upon that. You're just saying something that just made sense to me. Um, so yeah, um, those are both great questions. Um, so thank you very much. Um, this, I'm gonna go in reverse order. The second one, Unfortunately, I don't think we're gonna have a lot of time for. Um, I would love to be able to do a whole nother share at some point about like livestock farming and the ways that some of those things play out. There's you know, all sorts of great research out there on 
you know, the ways that they would have used cheese or dairy and, and animal husbandry, um, you know, I think for me, working with livestock opens up a whole new perspective on thinking about corbano and animal sacrifices as something that's, you know, you're, you're intimately familiar with the animals that you are uh, thinking about bringing to the temple. And, you know, that, that's, it's fascinating. And, and unfortunately it's outside the scope of what we're going to get to tonight. Um, your first question about vegetables and what they do and what they don't grow um, is a great lead into the next section. Um, you know, and, and thinking about beyond the seven species, what kinds of things are, are being grown? What kinds of things are, are not being grown? Um, yeah, and, and Sue, is, Sue is mentioning, um, yeah, legumes, fava beans, chickpeas, lentils, those are all mentioned in Tanakh. Those are also part of the diet. Um, Noah says, Hazal, the sages uh, hate turnips. Um, God forbid the sages should hate turnips. Turnips are phenomenal. Um, we love turnips. We love turnips here at Drisha. Um, but so, so there are a couple different perspectives on vegetables that we can see in, a, in, in different texts. Um, so one of my personal favorite texts about this kind of stuff comes from uh, the Yerushalmi in Kiddushin, where the sages are talking about, you know, in order for it to be acceptable or responsible for a Talmud Chacham, for a student or a sage to go live in a city, what are the kinds of what are the institutions, what kind of infrastructure do they need in order to be there successfully so that they're not just going to kind of be out in the middle of nowhere with no resources and, and you know, losing out on the opportunity to, to learn and teach Torah. Um, and, and there's a whole list of different things in the Yerushalmi. You need a physician, you need a bathhouse, you need a court. And uh, at the very end, uh, Rabbi Yossi Ben Bun says it's also forbidden to live in a town with no vegetable garden, um, which is great for me because I love vegetables. And the idea of requiring a vegetable garden or some other source of fresh food in our cities is really compelling to me. Uh, we're talking about valuing food access and food justice the same way that we value physical needs and ethical needs of, you know, courts, bathhouses, physicians. I think there's something really powerful in throwing that juxtaposition in there. On the other hand, yes, yeah, Sylvie says you also need a mikvah. Yeah, there are a few different, there are a few different uh, places where, where we get lists of this in the Gemara and it's really fascinating to like put them next to each other and see what the different things are that people think you, you need. Um, so on the one hand, we have this approach of, of saying that access to fresh food uh, for everyone needs to be part of what we think about when we set up our societies. On the other hand, uh, there are definitely places in Tanakh <clears throat> where vegetables don't get such a good rap. Uh, you know, in the seven species, we saw grains, and as Sue said, there's also a bunch of legumes that are key parts of the diet. Uh, we have our perennials, we have our fruit trees, nuts were also a huge part of it. Again, growing on trees, perennials, like part of the landscape. Um, we do have mentions of other vegetables. They were present, but they're not consistently valued the same way. Um, the research that's been done, the archaeological research seems to suggest that they were eaten and grown in, in much smaller quantities. They had 
less space devoted to them. People still enjoyed them, but they weren't nearly as central. Um, and, and so one of the ways in which this plays out is, uh, you know, thinking about what, what is it that, that makes for those differences? Um, you know, again, part of it is the amount of space or kind of how easy it is to, to store or trade things. Um, you know, what, what is going to command more value at market if people are selling their surplus? Um, and, and so you have vegetables, but uh, in, in some ways they're set up as inferior to some of those perennials and some of those cash crops. Uh, and so one of my favorite examples of this is if we look at numbers, if we look at Bamidbar, uh, the Israelites are in the desert. They're complaining uh, because even though they have manna and it's been coming down every day consistently throughout the course of their time in the desert, they're complaining because they don't have enough to eat. And they say, Remember the fish, cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, garlic that we used to eat, where? In Egypt, back when we were slaves. Um, and, and, and this kind of thing shows up a few other places as well. There, there are places in Exodus where they talk about, you know, all the meat that they used to get for free back when they were slaves. Um, there's this sense of like complaining, even though they have the essential food that they need, it may not necessarily be the thing that has the most variety or the most color, but it's the staple of their diet. And they're complaining about this, this lack of what we might see here as, as luxury foods. Um, oh, sorry, I forgot to scroll down. There's that quote. Um, so yeah, so, so we have a sense that, uh, you know, vegetables here are kind of juxtaposed to some of the other things that people might've been eating more often as, you know, they're nice, but let's not lose track of, of you know, where our food actually comes from and, and what the essential pieces of this are. Um, and I think another place where this plays out is later in uh, the book of Kings. Uh, there's a famous story from the story cycle of Eliyahu of the prophet Elijah uh, and his conflicts with Ahab and Jezebel, um, the king and the queen, where you know they keep oppressing people and, and doing terrible things and he keeps kind of pushing back against it where one of the stories is of the two of them uh, trying and ultimately successfully, um, you know, stealing a vineyard from, you know, a, a, a Joshmo Israelite named Navot. Um, and the story starts off by talking about what, what just kind of seems like a fairly innocuous interaction in some ways. Um, it says these, these events occurred Navot, the Jezreelite, owned a vineyard in Jezreel next to the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. Ahab said to Navot, give me your vineyard so that I may have it as a vegetable garden, since it's right next to my palace. I will give you a better vineyard in exchange, or if you prefer, I'll pay you its value in money. But Navot replied, God forbid that I should give up what I have inherited from my ancestors to you. On the face of it, it's a question of, you know, this property is mine, I wanna hold on to it. Um, and I think when we 
keep in mind some of what we saw earlier about the ways in which different things are valued, uh, we have a few different factors coming into play that, that really put more color into this story. The first is just the value of land, the, va the value of ancestral land, um, which is something that Novo in his reply is very attached to, the notion that not only is this his land, but it's also land that his ancestors have been on and have been growing produce on for generations. Um, you know, which is a very powerful pull for a lot of people. I think, uh, you know, I've met many people who have been farming for generations in the same spot, their family, and, and you know, that, that keeps people in one place. That's extraordinarily powerful. Um, but the other thing that's going on here is that Navot or Ahab, rather, wants to take a vineyard. He wants to take something that is a perennial crop, that's essential to the diet, that's extremely productive, and it takes a long time to learn to cultivate. And he wants to tear up all the vines and turn it into a vegetable garden. And again, when we think about the ways in which these different things are, are valued, it really comes out that this is an incredibly frivolous request. He's taking something very valuable and, and devaluing it for personal whim. Um, and, and that sets up an extra dimension of the story, not only to the abuse of power, but for the abuse of power for something that seems like it's making the situation so much worse, so much less productive. Um, and so I think this is one of those moments where we can really see how um, paying attention to the context of what's being grown, who's it being grown by, how is it being grown, gives us an extra angle on this story that is, is much harder to see when we don't have the context of, of what people were doing in their daily lives. Uh, you know, and I think that if someone's reading this thousands of years ago and they're growing you know, produce on, on their homestead in, in ancient Israel or you know, somewhere like that, that, that those tensions are much easier to spot than they are for us. Um, so those are a couple examples of the different ways where knowing that context and having those touch points of familiarity for how produce works for the writers and readers of Tanakh and the people who were, who were in that world really makes this story a lot more lively. Um, before we move on to the next part, um, do people have questions or comments just kind of, you know, wrapping up one section, thinking about produce, the seven species, vegetables. Uh, we're gonna talk for a little bit about water as another place where, where an eye for what living with the land can, can bring out there. Do, do folks have any, anything to chime in with just before we make that switch? Uh, okay, in the chat, yeah. Do you think that the availability of irrigation plays a bigger role in the type of crops grown? Once again, this is a fantastic transition, um, especially with thirsty veggies. Yes, this is exactly what we are about to talk about. Um, great, great anticipatory powers. Um, okay, anyone else before we jump into that? 
Great. So let's spend a few minutes thinking about water. Um, you know, like I said at the beginning of this, if you are working the land, you're very dependent on the seasons, the weather, things are very beyond your control. And this plays out for Jews and ancient Israelites as, as well as for the land of Israel itself in some very interesting ways. So we're gonna look at this passage from Devarim, from Deuteronomy. We're gonna see a few of the pieces that we've talked about coming into play here. It's a, it's a description of the land of Israel that the, that the Israelites are about to enter. Uh, it says, the land that you're about to enter and possess is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come. There, the grain you sowed had to be watered by your own labor, literally the Hebrew says, like a vegetable garden. But the land you're about to, and, and I should say, right, that's, that's, um, that basically means irrigation, um, you know, just kind of going back to that question. That's, that's, you know, Egypt is a society where they're dependent on the Nile River flooding, um, you know, they're dependent on using irrigation to bring the water to the field and the crops in order to do that. And so to be watered by your own labors basically means like you have to dig the trenches. Um, but the land you are about to cross into and possess, a land of hills and valleys, soaks up water from the rains of heaven. It is a land which the Lord your God looks after. God's eye is always upon it from the year's beginning to the year's end. It goes on, and this is going to be familiar to many of you as the second paragraph of the Shema, right? If you heed the commandments that I enjoin upon you this day, I will grant rain for your land in season, early rain, late rain, you shall gather in your grain and wine and oil. Again, those cash crops, those staples of the diet coming up. I will provide grass in the fields for your livestock. You shall eat and be satisfied. But if you turn away, God's anger will flare up against you and God will shut up the skies so that there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its produce. So we have this contrast set up, again, playing into some of what we saw earlier between the ways that, um, you know, I mean, first of all, Kigan Hayarak, right? Again, vegetables show up associated with Egypt, associated as something that's secondary, that's not nearly as desirable as the, um, you know, the, the things that are going to be growing, the digan grain, wine, oil, things are essential. We have that contrast playing out here. Um, and then furthermore, you know, we have this question of, of the different ways that we think about this land getting water. Um, on the one hand, we have irrigation, um, and on the other hand, we have rain. Um, you know, the Nile is fed, or the e Egypt is fed from the Nile. Uh, that is fairly consistent, uh, but very labor intensive. Rain potentially takes out some of that labor, but is also far less consistent. Uh, and so we have different mafarshim weighing in on what's going on in these passages, thinking through like what's what's the value of of rain and irrigation? Like why why are why are these descriptions part of the the sense of scharva onish of of reward and punishment? Or, or why is this enticing when we think about being in Eretz Israel? 
So Rashi is, is going to weigh in, basically say, you know, like land that is watered by your own labors or Egypt. Um, the land of Egypt required one to bring water from the Nile by foot to irrigate it. You had to rise from your sleep to toil. It's a lot of work. This land, Israel, soaks up its water from the rains of heaven. You may sleep soundly in your beds and the holy blessed one waters both the low and the high places. Um, you know, and then again, going back to that idea of a vegetable garden, Gan Hayarak, that we saw as the foil to Eretz Yisrael, vegetable garden, which does not receive enough from rain alone, and one has to water it with foot and shoulder. We're, con we're, we're comparing and contrasting the, uh, the different ways that rain might be a blessing, um, that, that Hashem is blessing the people by telling them that they will receive rain, not just in a general sense, but also because they are coming from a context where um, in order to provide their basic sustenance, they had to do this incredible amount of labor and they're being promised a divine reprieve in a new land. Um, on the flip side, you have the commentary of, of Rashbam, who's gonna complicate that notion a little bit. Uh, he's gonna go back to that, that same passage and he's gonna note the, the contrast that's set up. The land of Israel that you're going to inherit is not like the land of Egypt. He says it's superior in quality to Egypt for the people who observe God's laws and inferior to all other lands for people who do not observe God's laws, right? The, the same thing that we saw kind of playing into the second paragraph of the Shema, this could go either way, depending on how people conduct themselves. The land that you're inheriting is not like the land of Egypt, which does not lack for water, whether its people are good or bad. The Nile floods every year pretty consistently. Those irrigation channels are in place. Like it's a lot of work, but it's very consistent. But the land of Israel is dependent, the water is dependent on whether or not you observe the mitzvot. And there's this notion for, for Rashbam that, you know, if, if things are going well, if, uh, if the Jews are, are kind of in sync with, with God's will, God will make it easier. God will provide for them through this rain. Um, and if they're not, then there's going to be a direct consequence. Rain can be withheld. It can make life a lot easier. It can also make life a lot harder if there's a lack of it. Um, and so we see those kinds of things um, playing out again in ways where I think someone who's familiar with um, needing to constantly check the weather or needing to go out to the fields and kind of see how the plants are doing, what they need, has there been enough water? Are there pests? You know, are, are other animals trying to like eat the tomatoes before I can get to them? Um, there, there's a sense of, of being aware of the toil that's involved in this project and the ways in which that becomes an opportunity for relationship with the land, but also, you know, pulling in a relationship with, with God uh, as, as part of this, this idea of how they're going to understand the ways in which these things are, are part of their world. Uh, playing out in a in a day-to-day -day sense, but also in um, 
you know, a, a sense of factoring into a, a divine human relationship. Um, of course, there are ways that they might mitigate that. And so for folks who have been to Israel um, and, and many other places as well, but, you know, for me, I think the place where I associate this with, the place I associate this with the most is like central Israel um, is, is terraces. Um, you know, if you are driving in or around Jerusalem and you see all of these terraced hillsides, um, you know, this is a way in which the people who have lived on that land for millennia have tried to mitigate some of the, the risk involved in needing to depend on rain. Um, because especially on a hillside, it's really easy for the rain to just run off and for them to not actually be able to get sufficient water to the things that they're trying to grow. So what folks will do is that they will build these, you know, kind of small walls such that you can fill them in with earth and, and basically make steps running down the hillside so that when the rain comes down, it stays in place. There's a level surface for it instead of it just running straight down to the bottom of the hill and nothing getting sufficient rain. Um, you know, and, and yeah, you know, that's something that, that still exists to this day. You can drive through Israel and see this there. It is, you know, direct evidence of the ways in which rain is incredibly important to and impactful for people who are trying to grow food and an awareness of how important that is to, to their lives and like an acute need for it. Um, so, you know, there's a bunch of different ways in which I think we see playing out in Tanakh this sense of how the rhythms of that daily life would have been evident to people who are reading these texts in earlier societies, to the people who are their first interpreters when we're talking about um, Chazal thinking through the Mishnah, the Gemara, they are also living in agricultural societies. And there's a kind of innate awareness uh, for some of these reference points that I think is hard for a lot of people. This is just not the society that most of us live in anymore, where we kind of have uh, that intuitive understanding of what is going on in the natural world and some of those very subtle rhythms that, that are playing out. Uh, but I do think that an ability to be mindful of those rhythms can bring out a lot of shades of what's going on and make our experience reading Tanakh far more powerful. Um, you know, one place where I see this playing out all the time is in a text like Shira Shirim, the Song of Songs. Um, it's this extraordinary love po poem, uh, but it's also biblical pastoral poetry. Uh, if you read through Shira Shirim, you will notice that the metaphors that are used to describe the, the different characters and the love between them are situated primarily in the natural world. Uh, we're talking about forests, we're talking about mountains, we're talking about orchards and gardens. Um, those are the everyday experiences that people are having. Those are the reference points for what they're seeing. 
And they're also at the same time as being something that they have some familiarity with, they're also a source of fascination and a source of beauty. You know, people who are involved in looking at these things and growing these things every day don't just see them as objects, don't just see them as part of their work. There is a beauty in thinking about what a bundle of wheat or an apricot tree looks like that can be really easy to overlook when we're not in it. Um, I, you know, I think just to look at this one, this one verse, we have this description at the beginning of the fourth chapter. You know, you are fair, my darling. You are fair. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats streaming down Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes climbing up from the washing pool. All of them bear twins and not one loses her young. When we look at the Tanakh, thinking about agriculture, thinking about animal husbandry, I think it gives us an ability to look at some things like this in, in a completely new way. These psukim struck me as a very strange way to describe a lover until I worked on a farm. Um, like I have seen lots of flocks of goats like running through a field and running down a hillside to like come greet me when I walk into the pen because they know that I have food for them and they get very excited. Um, it's stunning. Like again, put it at the top of your post pandemic list to like go see a flock of goats streaming down a mountain. It's extraordinary. Um, you know, going through lambing season where the default for, for sheep or goats is usually that they're giving birth to twins. There's always the danger of, of something going wrong. There's a lamb who's not gonna make it. There's a bad birth. The mother might die. Uh, you know, the kids might be sickly. Um, the idea of an entire flock having twins with all of them growing up healthy, it's not something that, that you can assume is gonna happen. It's, it's rare, it's special, it's something to be cherished. Um, and so there's this sense when, when I look at those psukim of thinking about, you know, if, if you are a person who is working with animals and you have that sense of wonder uh, when you see those animals moving around, if you have that sense of, of gratitude when you've gone through a lambing season and everyone is healthy and happy, uh, we're talking about things that are rare, that are special, that are breathtaking. There's a reason why this is being used as a description for love between these two people. But I think it's sometimes easy to lose sight of that without the frame of reference and without a careful reading, thinking about what this meant to, to people for thousands of years. Um, and, and having a frame of reference for that is, is really, really powerful. Um, you know, again, there, there's a lot more to be said about animal husbandry that I'm not gonna have time to get to. Um, but, but I think that uh, there, there's, there's so much here that we can tap into thinking about metaphors of stewardship and shepherding when, when we're doing that. Um, and, and the last thing that I wanna 
And with the last source is uh, a quote from a book called Our Jewish Farmers by Gabriel Davidson. Um, book is this really fantastic chronicle of like agricultural utopian colonies in the United States, which were a huge thing in the 19th and early 20th century, like that predate the kibbutz movement of, of the same kind of idea of like, let's get the poor shtetl Jews out of Europe and, and kind of have the new Jew, the, you know, strong, productive member of society, agricultural worker, um, and, and the, those like dotted the United States throughout the 19th and 20th century, as well as a number of other countries before they kind of got eclipsed by um, kibbutzim and, and, and the agricultural movement in, in Israel with the, with the rise of Zionism. But um, again, whole nother sheer to, to think about some of that history and the ways in which it's been um, predominantly not made part of the, the story of uh, American Jewry, which is, sad um, and, and should be amended. But, um, you know, thinking about, thinking about this, one of the things he says is that biblical and post-biblical Jews were primarily and preponderantly farmers. It took nearly two millennia of history to make the drastic change from rural to urban dwellers, from farmers to city folk, from people working the land and fashioning the simple tools of an agricultural society to a dispersed people overwhelmingly petty tradesmen, professional workers, and a footless proletariat. It took wars to devastate Palestine and bring about by forced migrations, a scattering of the tribes all over the known world. It took religious prescription to set these people apart for centuries, to make possession of the land impractical and later illegal for them, to deny their participation in the guilds, that is in the emerging manufacturing of commodities. It took 2,000 years of denial, persecution, legal restriction, and religious hostility to convert a people of farmers into a people of middlemen. There are lots of jokes that people make, um, you know, about Jews and farming and how strange it is and why would you ever do that. Um, most of them are meant in good faith. Um, I always find them somewhat frustrating, uh, both because that is something I've done, that is something I love, that is something that a lot of Jews I know love, and in many ways, in many cases, it's like a thing that ties them to Judaism more powerfully than anything else in their Jewish life. Um, but also because the reason that Jews aren't farmers a lot of the time is because Jews weren't allowed to be farmers. Jews were not allowed to own land. Jews were you know, told to fit into the jobs assigned for them and the context given to them by the societies around them where they were the minority and where they did not have a choice. And that alienation is not something that was chosen. Uh, and, and that's led ourselves to circumstances where it's harder to find Jewish farms and Jewish farmers. Um, and the good news is, there are a lot of people who are working on changing that. Um, there has been a phenomenal renaissance in the, I mean, in the past 150 years or so, when we think about in the land of Israel, um, the, the way that agriculture is a pillar of that economy, but also closer to home, we have seen, you know, I think in the past 20 years, there's been like a four or five fold increase in the number of Jews who are participating in 
immersive outdoor experiences who are doing, you know, Pesach in the desert, who are working on a Jewish farm, who are, you know, working for environmental nonprofits. Um, you know, there's fantastic work that's being done out there. Um, you know, there's a great organization out there called the Jewish Farmer Network that is connecting people, uh, you know, who are, who are doing this work around North America. And, um, you know, I, I would encourage people to look up some of the organizations that are doing this work. Um, and I would encourage people, you know, whether it's Jewish or not to also like look up your local farmers. Um, it's not an easy time to be doing that work but I guarantee you that if you go to a farmer's market, if you join a CSA, a farm share, you will be putting money into your local economy. You will be getting better produce than you can get anywhere else. Um, and it's a real opportunity to connect to something that has been extraordinarily important to Jewish history and Jewish culture for a long time. And that has become much harder for a variety of circumstances. And thank God, like we have the ability to do it. Um, and we have the ability to, to foster those connections, um, even though that chain has been disrupted over the course of history. Um, so I'm going to stop there and thank you all for being here. We've got a few minutes for questions. Um, so please feel free to put something in the chat. Feel free to just shout out and chime in. Uh, very happy to spend a little more time with folks. Michael, Sue here, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I have a question for you um, about the breaking of that chain. Um, you know, we do a lot of uh, food justice work. Uh, I work for one of the Jewish farms. Uh, we grow food on two, we're an urban farm in Denver growing food for uh, the Jew Jewish Family Services and uh, Kavod Senior Living's Food Pantry. But when we do social justice work in, our, in the wider community, um, there's a big movement um, there's a lot of attention being placed on um, food, particularly in the immigrant community, in the black community, and, and in the um, in, in the native communities around food food ways. What's our what's our real food? What's our authentic food that's been kept from us? What how how did we uh, keep our food pathways or rediscover them? Even if uh, you know, even if we had to braid braid the seeds in our hair. Uh, on, the, on the slave ships, or if we had to have seed jars that we've still kept and I, and I have a seed keeper in the native traditions. I, I'm really searching for the Jewish equivalent of that. And there must have been. I mean, I just don't know if there's so many uh, moves out of the land of Israel that there just is no longer a record of that. I don't know if it was all, you know, after the first and second uh, temple exiles, if there was, but I'm just wondering if you know of any, or have you, if you've read, or if you have any uh, thoughts really on how do we connect back to whatever our seed, whatever our seeds are, or traditions of keeping those seeds. Mm. That's a great question. Um, I think it depends where you want to look. Uh, there have been some really great things written about traditional Jewish foodways and Jewish societies that I think are, you know, early modern or modern. Uh, you know, you have folks who have done, I don't know, I'm just trying to think like, you know, Gil Marx, Claudia Rodin, 
um, you know, Joan Nathan has a bunch of stuff on this. There's a wonderful book called the Gefilte Manifesto that tries to like get rid of the stereotype about Ashkenazi food being brown and bland and to think through the ways in which like what we think of as Ashkenazi is actually, you know, Polish, German, Galician, Russian, like all of these different societies and foods and cultures that kind of got collapsed into one, mostly because of the Shoah and the displacement of the 20th century. And like, same thing has happened with Sparty food. There are people who talk about the ways in which, you know, thinking about like Spanish food and North African food and, and Turkish food as the same comes from like the collapse of some of those communities uh, and their concentrations in fewer and fewer locations. So I think there's, all, there, there's definitely stuff out there um, for, for modern and pre-modern. Um, I don't know as much about the ancient stuff. Uh, you know, I think that there are definitely folks who have thought through, you know, what, what are the things that you see coming up? What are the foods that people are talking about? What are the pieces of the diet? Um, and again, thinking through the relationship to some of the, the plants and the foods that we see in Tanakh is powerful for me. Um, there are many different recipes and foods and herbal remedies that get talked about throughout the Talmud, um, some of which sound very appetizing, some of which do not. Um, I, you know, if anyone ever finds like a Gemara cookbook, please let me know because I would love to learn more about some of the things that they were eating because like, to me, that idea of connecting to that part of Jewish history through food and through material culture is really important. Um, a thing that I did earlier this year was like, I had learned a bunch about um, a, a condiment that shows up in the Talmud called kutach, um, which is described all over as like this mix of milk and salt and moldy bread. And, you know, I was reading about it and very confused as to like what this actually looks like or tastes like. I went down a huge rabbit hole turns out that like very similar foods show up in like medieval Arabian court cookbooks and you can like find kutach recipes. So I made it. Um, it, you know, I did not use multi bread. I, that did not sound like a good idea. I used sourdough starter instead, but you know, I tried to ferment an approximation of this thing from the Bavli. Um, and like, it takes work and it takes combing through some of those texts to find things, but like it's out there. And I think that when we take the time and the effort, it can be so fun and so rewarding. Um, other questions? Um, I had one thing that doing some reading and back in the biblical times, I mean, you often don't hear about all the work that women do. And the guys were out in the fields a lot, and the women were at home grinding the, the wheat and making flour. And that was often when they would talk to each other and find out what was going on, you know, in their areas where they were living, because they had the time to do that. It wasn't a solitary thing. So women would get together and grind the grain, which took hours. And I think some of the <laughs> feminist um, attributes of life back then, because the women really were talking about the men out in the fields and, and everything else. So it's fascinating when you look at it from a archeological, historical perspective, the vision of labor and so on. 
Um, but it was not an easy life. And grinding bread, if you're going to do that by, you know, by hand, the grindstones, it was very tedious. And the camaraderie they had doing it together, I think just kind of like helped family life back then. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you for bringing that up. I think that's, yeah, it's really important to think about the ways in which, um, yeah, there are some ways in which there's there's divisions of labor where where people are doing different things based on gender or socioeconomic status. Um, there's also, I think there's there, there's places where those distinctions show up. I think there's also some interesting places where we see that people from different genders or different socioeconomic statuses would be doing some of the same work from time to time. Um, so we have examples in Tanakh of, of both men and women who are listed as, as doing shepherding work. Um, and, you know, that's something that was accessible to all, um, you know, I think in a, in, in a lot of different farm contexts that I've seen or, or heard, you do have a sense that, you know, everyone has to be able to contribute. Everyone has to know how to do everything. Um, and there are also, like you said, definitely ways in which there are like gendered and patriarchal assumptions about who gets to do what. Uh, and, and yeah, it's, there's, there's a, there's a lot to explore about the balance between those two. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you brought it up. Uh, anyone else? Hi, Michael. Oh, Laura, go. Um, I have, I've had coworkers and friends who are Christian who have told me about this biblical diet that they have followed and a study of biblical foods and a biblical diet and a biblical fast. Has there been any study in comparing that to our Jewish text to see of similarities and differences? Um, not, not that I know of, uh, Noah says the, the Daniel fast. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I hadn't heard of it before, so I, it, I don't know exactly what the story is. I wonder whether one difference might be that like the new Testament also takes place during and immediately after the second temple era. Uh, and so their version of the biblical diet may include something that is a thousand or 2000 years removed from parts of what we might consider a biblical, like, like I don't know which parts they're pulling from. Um, that may have an influence, but I, I would imagine there's definitely some, some overlap, but I, I just don't have firsthand knowledge of it. Thank you. And thank you, Noah, for coming up with the name that I couldn't think of. That's exactly what it was. Uh, there were, I, I think I saw two more from from Alana and, and Sylvia and maybe we'll take those and then in the interest of time we'll uh, we'll wrap up after that. Okay I'll go quickly so that it's over. Um, this might be jumping ahead to the class on ethics but based on the sources around certain foods being required I'm curious how that might like if there's any crossover to the idea of how there's food deserts in America and as Jews do we have any obligations around fighting that? Yeah, um, we absolutely do. We absolutely do. And and there are some really, there's, there's a lot that has been written about hunger and food justice in Jewish texts. I think we see some stories playing out 
in Tanakh, where we see, you know, like, you know, on Sunday, we are going to be talking about the manna in the desert, you know, one of the first experiences of a people who are liberated is food security. That is essential. It is enshrined in the Mishkan. They take a portion of manna and put it right next to the tablets. It is the heart of their peoplehood. It's the heart of their religious life, that sense of security. Um, and I think we see a lot of things playing out later uh, in rabbinic sources where they talk about the need to pay attention to all members of society, um, the notion that everyone's in it together, the notion that it's also cyclical, that the folks who are on top today uh, may be on bottom tomorrow. And, and there's a sense that like, these things are fluid, these things require teamwork and collaboration. Um, yeah, I think, I think there's absolutely a lot of material out there about the ways in which ensuring food security is an essential thing that we need to be thinking about. Uh, Sylvie, last question. Yeah, thanks, Michael. I just was wondering, um, as you are starting your, your rabbinate, um, how you're envisioning incorporating these agricultural themes in your future work or your current work as a rabbinical student? Oh, there are so many answers to that question. Um, I, I mean, I think even before I knew that I wanted to be in the rabbinate, I knew that I wanted this to be something that was central to, to my life. And I think, you know, in some ways uh, that's going to play out in terms of my relationship to food and the natural world and the kinds of communities that I want to be part of, the things that I want to do with any land that I may or may not eventually own um, are a big part of that. Um, but I've also seen a lot in terms of the ways in which this brings a lot of people to the table. Uh, you know, this is something that's important to people whether it's thinking about food as culture or nourishment or history or as an ethics issue. Um, there are so many ways in which I have seen people come be part of a community that they didn't think was going to address their interests or address their needs when they realized that like, there's a seat at the table for me. The Torah has something to say about this. People aren't talking about how much the Torah has to say about this. And all of a sudden when they are, people want in, in a new way. Um, and seeing that over the years has been incredibly important for me. Like I've been one of those people. I've been someone who finds whole new worlds opened up by thinking about the connections between those things. And I've seen that happen for other people. Um, so those connect, like without getting into a ton of, specifics. Um, you know, I, I think there, there are definitely ways in which I think about, you know, what kind of jobs can, can have me out there, like being a farm educator? Do I want to think about, you know, becoming a Shohei? Do I want to think about, you know, working on one of the, the many like Jewish farms or Jewish environmental organizations that are out there? Like there are kind of some, some concrete things, but, but in a broader sense, like, this is something that matters immensely to people and that brings them to Torah and that brings Torah to them. And, and that I know is an essential part of what I want to be doing um, because I think that like the, 
the world of Torah is so much more expansive and so much more fascinating and rigorous than we can ever really grab hold of. But to the extent that we can grab hold of that uh, or some piece of it, like that's that's what it's all about. Um, thank you again, everyone, for being here. Um, I'm going to put my email in the chat if folks have questions, want to follow up. Um, please feel free to send me a note. Please also go to drisha.org slash classes, sign up for Yomi Yoon, sign up for classes that are going on throughout next week as part of our Winter's Mon. Um, we've had an amazing time this week. It's going to continue to be really engaging material next week. And um, yeah, best wishes everyone for a new year full of health, happiness, and many, many vegetables. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Wishing you a year of vegetables too. Um, thank it's you so for shy. this fantastic presentation. Um, and really thanks to everyone who showed up. You know, when I when I put Michael on the spot, I said, you know, at least Michael has enough friends that someone will come. And we had a really <laughs> great turnout. Um, and, um, um, and it's been just such a pleasure learning to with all of you this week. Please, please, please come back. Um, next week, or we'll be talking about where all this food production we've been talking about this week. The next question is, how do we get the food from where it's produced to the people who need it? And that's what we'll be talking about next week. So please come back. I'm very excited about it. We're partnering up with Pazone, Mazone, all the zones, um, as well as must be a Met Council, Chicago's Ark, just really, really good stuff coming up. So please keep, stay with us. Um, and, and learn to with Drisha. Um, have a beautiful new year. Ishimashalom. Um, and a great night. Thank you.